ending racism and ending the systemic system isn't political. It's just what we need to do as a country for human beings, for equality. Your political stance and whatever you believe, let's put that aside. I think we can come to an agreement that people being marginalized, oppressed, and being treated different is wrong. And this is right against wrong, not blue versus red. Welcome to Hot Coffee Cold Beer. I'm your host, Brock Hendricks, with the LA Lakers, Clippers, and Kings. On this podcast, we'll sit down and share a hot coffee or a cold beer with those who have made a name for themselves working inside the highly competitive sports industry. All the content heard today is solely reflective of the independent reporting by Hot Coffee Cold Beer and our team and does not reflect the opinion or feelings of AEG, Staples Center, the LA Lakers, Clippers, Kings, or Sparks. Today's guest is Manny Jacobo, the Vice President of Premium Sales and Service at my employer, the Staples Center. Manny got his start in sports with the Buffalo Bills at the NFL and has since gone on to work for the New York Jets, opening MetLife Stadium, and the Brooklyn Nets, opening Barclays Center. You'll hear about breaking down walls inside the sports industry. This episode does feature some not safe for work language and an in-depth conversation about difficult topics, including racism in the workplace, social injustice, and the Black Lives Matter movement. Hot Coffee Cold Beer stands in unison with Black Lives and will vow to amplify their voice through this episode and through always. Here's the story of Manny Jacobo. Hey, Manny, thank you so much for joining us. I think we're going to get into some pretty heavy stuff here, some things we've never seen on the show. Really appreciate you coming on. Do you have a hot coffee or cold beer ready I to go? I actually have a hot tea, so I hope that's okay. I, I've been trying to reduce my coffee intake, and it's too early for the uh, beer. I was selfishly hoping you would bring out your drink of choice, Hennessy, and then we could really get loose on the show, but tea is acceptable. We, I have a couple other meetings, otherwise we would definitely be getting down. It's a whole new level. Hot coffee, cold Hennessy is a much different story than hot coffee, cold beer. Henny and Coke. Manny, we really wanted to talk to you because you're really going to take the show to a whole new level today. We talked to a lot of our guests about the stories and the values they learn from their Mm -hmm. paths. And most of them have overcome some pretty hard stuff and learning from that hardship has really shaped them into who they are today. And some of our past guests have been through a lot, but I don't know that I've ever heard a story like yours. And I don't want to spoil too much because I want the listeners to hear it from you personally. When I heard your story in the past, I'm amazed at the things you've been able to accomplish. And we hear this Jay-Z story, right, where he talks about his path in his life of like, I wasn't supposed to make it in this world, yet here I am. And you have something directly similar from my understanding. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Jay-Z, I'm I'm glad you brought him up. You know how I feel about my guy. He's also kind of an inspiration just coming from where I come from. I was born and raised in the Bronx, about a mile away from Yankee Stadium. And this was during the crack epidemic. Like it wasn't a great time and you're pretty much just set up to fail. That's where a lot of the Jay-Z affinity comes into play because he also came from a similar background in Brooklyn and pulled himself out of it. Born and raised in the Bronx, single mom. She had three kids, immigrant from Dominican Republic. My father was also from Dominican Republic, black gentleman. My mother was light-skinned. So she's more of the Italian Spaniard, whereas my father was more of the black Dominican towards Haiti. My father was not part of the picture. So my brother was actually kind of my father figure. And he's the person that helped guide me and keep me out of trouble. Because when you grow up in the environment that I grew up in, you get pulled in negative directions almost immediately. As you're walking to school, you know, there's drug dealers up and down the block or right within school. And this starts at a very young age. Have you ever seen the show The Wire? 
So yep. the wire kind of gives you a good breakdown of how young people get pulled into the drug game or into bad things where you have these kids that are like six years old and they're runners. My brother made it his goal to make sure that I slid out of that environment and I never got in trouble and pushed me towards education and sports with a very, very huge emphasis on education, making me understand that sports will get you to where you want to go if you're lucky. Your mind will always get you to where you want to go, regardless of what you do physically. Another thing that kept me out of trouble and, and you know ties into where we are right now with social justice as well is the conversation he had to have with me in late 80s, early 90s regarding you know police and how to survive that, right? Because growing up in an environment like the Bronx, and you hear this in rap songs and see it in movies. You have your challenges and the dangers of the streets, but you also have the dangers and the fear of the people that are supposed to be there to protect and serve you. And my brother had an experience where he was beat up by police officers. I'm at a young age, and this is when he had the talk with me, which a lot of black kids have to have. And that's how to act around police officers and the fact that they protect and serve a certain part of the population that I'm not part of. For us, they police and harass us, right? So he had that conversation with me. So he helped me stay out of trouble in the streets and he helped me stay out of trouble with the folks that were supposed to be kind of protecting us. With that background at a very young age, I kind of started formulating what I wanted to do and I fell in love with basketball. That was my second love. My first love was music, but I fell in love with basketball and I started playing basketball and I got into it in high school. And in my head, I was going to go to the NBA and be the next Michael Jordan. But I also had in mind what my brother told me about schooling and made sure that I paid attention in school because what he told me in terms of it being important was solidified my freshman year when our freshman year assembly, part of the speech was most of you aren't going to make it. Most of you are going to end up in jail, either that or you're going to die or you're going to be stuck in the drug game and never get out of it, get someone pregnant. Some of you will make it out of the hood, but that's going to be based off of your ability to play sports and or entertain folks. And that's a small percentage. And then some of you might make it to college. So it was my introduction to high school. And that helped me understand what my brother was saying throughout my childhood and what I needed to do. So in high school, I focused on basketball, but I also focused on academics. I went to one of the worst schools in the Bronx called Samuel Gompers, where teachers, they didn't give a shit. I took that opportunity to, to make sure that I taught myself and I would show up for my tests and, and get the grades that I needed. And that helped me get the academic background because as luck would have it, I didn't get the athletic scholarship that I thought I would get. My senior year wasn't as expected. So it was just a decision to make. Do you go with an academic scholarship or do you try to pursue sports through junior college and try to get your way in? And, and for me, it made more sense to play the game of my mind and utilize that to get to where I wanted to go. Fast forward to college, I tried to play a little basketball and walk on. Long story short, I just wasn't good enough. I could shoot a little bit. I could drive with my right. and That was pretty much my game. But I ended up focusing on a career in sports at 18. I went to the men's basketball side of the business. And they basically told me, you know, they have a wait list for work study, which is what I was looking for. They directed me to women's basketball, which at the time I found to be a little, you know, insulting because in my head, I'm just 
past basketball star and all this other nonsense. But it was my first lesson in sports and getting where you fit in and work your way up. And that's what I did. Started out washing the team's underwear and, and jerseys and taking care of tickets and, and all these little tasks. But I ended up working my way up to direct operations by the time I graduated. But more importantly, it allowed me to form relationships with our master's program assistant director, I think she was, Stacy Studsville, who also introduced me to the Buffalo Bills and I was working game day. So I was getting experience on the collegiate level, on the player basketball ops coaching side, as well as on the business side. After graduation, undergrad, I ended up coaching women's basketball for a year at Gannon University, which I actually don't think you know that. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. Ended up going back to school to Canisius College in Buffalo, where I did my undergrad to do my master's program. Again, going back to the fact that I worked from the beginning of my collegiate career with the women's team, I already had the relationship with the Bills. Going back for my master's, I was able to work out a grad assistantship with the Buffalo Bills, and that was the start of my career in sports. And again, as luck would have it, someone left the company and I was able to take my grad assistantship and make that a full-time job as an account executive. And kind of the rest is history. From there, I ended up with the Jets, opening MetLife, then Barclays Center with the Nets, then through Barclays Center, running ticket sales for the Islanders and their relocation to Brooklyn. And then this opportunity for coming to AEG and Staples Center and working for Michelle came available. And I jumped on that immediately. Man, when you're in this, what's the perspective? Like while you're in this bad place, how do you even dream big enough? Like it's one thing for your brother to say, hey, this is kind of a way out. Education can get you into a better place. Mm -hmm. But when you're in such a tough position, does the world just feel like it's out to get you? Yes, it kind of does. And it's really just the mindset that you have to have of surviving first and foremost, and then getting out is kind of what you hang your hat on. I was blessed because there's not a lot of situations where it's a single family house where the brother is the one that takes the father role. It's usually you find it somewhere else or something else happens. But I was blessed with my brother to give me the good advice. But in the same vein, he also showed me what not to do because he got stuck in that life, in that world. And his advice was, it wasn't just don't do this because I heard it was don't do this because look at me or don't do this because I just spent a night in jail or a week in jail. So he helped me see what not to do. And then you add on there the pain that I would see in my mom's eyes because her eldest son was involved in this life and he was dealt a horrible hand, right? Because he's the oldest, so he didn't have that person to protect him and show him the way. I happen to have that with him. Seeing the pain in my mom's eyes also put that battery in my back, if you will, to, to get out and help my family get out and, and live in a better area and get out the projects and be the first person in my family to graduate from college and be the only person in my family to get a master's. And all of that was founded in the pain and suffering that I would see in my mom, the motivation that my brother gave me, and just personally a desire to get out and be able to set an example for other people that would come after me. But to your point, the way I've always put it is life is this race. And when you look like me and it's black and brown people and to a certain degree, women as well, you start the race and everybody has different starting points. And my demographic happens to start it two laps behind everybody else. And not only that, to catch up, you're running normal. You're just running a race. I'm running an obstacle race just to get to the starting point to be able to run a normal race. And that's kind of what it's like. It just seems like everywhere in your story, there's some kind of massive setback. Some of it's racial injustice and things you didn't have control over. Well, really, all of it is things you don't have control over. You're watching your brother go down a vicious cycle. 
you're in a high school that tells you you're going to get someone pregnant or you're not even going to make it past this world. And there's all these things around you. And in a certain sense of life, you just kind of are the product of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. And here you are every single turn of this path. Somebody's telling you politely, they're saying, fuck you, you're not going to make it. How do you not listen on this path? How do you really block out school saying you're only going to be worth this? A brother saying, look at how easy it is to fall into this. How on earth do you block that out? At some point, you got to look in the mirror and decide what you want for your future, right? Going through it and living through it, you don't want that life unless you get stuck in it and you're lost. But for me, it was just, this is my current situation. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't change it for the world. And I think you know this. I love where I come from. I love where I was raised. I love the things that I've had to go through because it's given me the skill set and the determination, motivation that I have now. But at the end of the day, at some point, you just got to look within and you can't make the excuses because that's part of the problem. Once you start making excuses, you're justifying the situation you're in as opposed to trying to fight to get out of it. I can't be mad at my situation. I can't be mad at my mother. I can't be mad at my brother. I can't be mad at anything. All I can do is take it and figure out a way to solve this puzzle and get out and be able to achieve and do things that, quite honestly, I'm not supposed to do, right? Because statistically speaking, by 28, I probably should have been in jail or dead based off where I did grow up. But it's that never give up attitude. And some of that does come from sports as well. I can't downplay that at all. I mean, what you learn playing any sport, for me, it was basketball. And also, sometimes you have great people in your life outside of your family. Like my basketball coach, Jackson, was a Marine. So the the level of dedication and, and motivation he instilled or built on the foundation that I already have is invaluable. It's really amazing, Manny, that in this story, in a world of no's and everything around you is no, that you found the yeses Mm -hmm. in these hidden places. It's really amazing. And what that leads to is it gets you out of a really bad position. One day you're opening MetLife Stadium with the Jets. The next you're opening Barclay Center with Brooklyn. This is a very interesting part of your path to kind of pivot into maybe some lighter times. You're a better man than I am for a lot of reasons, but for one of them is to be able to work for your rival team. You're this (laughs) diehard New York Jets fan. And here comes an opportunity for you with the Buffalo Bills. I'm such a diehard team sake in, in my world that when I was working in minor league baseball, I got my first quote big league offer to interview, but it was with a rival team of mine. And I just deleted the email. It went straight to junk. Now here you are a bigger Jets fan than I am of any of my teams. And you go work for the rival, the Bills. What was that like? I just separated, right? And it actually goes back to working for the women's basketball team, where in my heart of hearts, I wanted to work for the men's team. I didn't respect the women's game because the women's game that I saw was what I was seeing in my high school, which it wasn't taken seriously. It wasn't really a thing. So I didn't understand what women's basketball was. Understanding and learning within our industry, you got to get in how you fit in. I did that with the women's team. So by the time it came time for me to be a professional and get into the sports world, it could have been the Patriots. And I would have been like, you want me to do what? Drive a shuttle around the building and pick up ADA folks and take them to their gate, which by the way, was my first job with the Bills. No doubt I'm in because I need to be able to get into this industry. This is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And then there's the added layer that does tie into where I do come from, where it's like, I can't go back without being successful. I will do whatever you need me to do for whoever it is to get in here. And then once I get in, oh, you ain't going to be able to get me out was my attitude. When you finally make it to the Jets, because in your career, you pivot, eventually you leave Buffalo, you go back to New York, and this time it's for the Jets in this accomplished role. Is there anything different about it? Because it's now you're back in your city. 
It's your team. Is there something that's a little bit sweeter about getting the Jets job in your story because of those things, because of how much harder it was for you to leave and come back? It was a gift and a curse. It was the moment in my career where I felt like I did it. I made it. I've done something. But the reality is, is that's still the start of my career. When I got to the Jets, I was a seller. I ended up uh, getting into management a few months later. But having that attitude, I did it, I made it, was great. It was a great feeling and it was an honor to work for my team. But it also stunted my growth because I felt that this is the top of the mountain. It just gave me a false sense of what the reality was for me. And that's where your heart can blind you sometimes. So be careful what you wish for in terms of working for a team you absolutely love. Something that stands out in your time is, you know, you eventually leave the Jets, you go to Brooklyn to go start the Barclays Center. Mm -hmm. It's a building for which you're opening. And in your role specifically, you're opening the premium partnerships team. So it's a building that haven't had these processes yet. They have to bring you in to figure it out. So it's not like you're going from the Jets and making a couple tweaks and this is how the process works and you're toning it in. When you go to Barclays, you have to make the process. You don't get to replace somebody. You have to go this is how we do things here. It's such a sink or swim position in your story. Are there any unusual things that you remember about going through the process for the first time, like knowing that there's this pressure of this is the first time whatever I do will happen in this building? That was for all of us on that premium partnership team. From our bosses to you know my colleague, we were all the first ever sweeps team for the Nets slash Barclays Center. It was a lot of growth. And to be honest with you, like when I first started on the premium side, because you know, season ticket is completely different than premium suites. When I first got into it, it was a learning curve for me. And honestly, when I first started, I, I wasn't doing too well because I was trying to be someone that I wasn't and do things within the sales process that went against how I did things. And it took Lance Tyson actually coming in to help train us to really shake me out of it and say, hey, you got here being who you are. What you're selling doesn't change how you sell it. Keep that in mind and go. And then in terms of processes, uh, it's just opportunities, right? My direct boss was Dan Lefton, and he didn't have anyone kind of be the middle manager at the time. He just had all of us reporting up to him. But I saw it as an opportunity to how can I help improve these processes and how can I help give suggestions that'll mold what this department will ultimately look like at some point. And that's how I approached it as kind of just a team effort and, and let's make us better because that's what opened the door for me to take that Islanders position within BSC. Dan and Brian Baslow saw that, all right, this kid gets it. He gets the structure and strategy and all these things. We have this massive project with bringing a hockey team to Brooklyn. Let's trust this kid to be part of that process. Hey everyone, glad you're enjoying the show. On this quick coffee break, we wanted to remind you that Sports Business Solutions on their website has a program called The Clubhouse with live on-demand webinars, career and mental health services, and mentorship from sports professionals, including myself, Matt Tomey of the Sacramento Kings from episode five, and William Wall from the LA Chargers in episode 11. There are endless resources on The Clubhouse, including one-on-one interview prep and access to live webinars with the kind of edge up content that you will only find from from sports business solutions. You can find out more about the clubhouse on sportsbusiness.solutions, where industry leaders such as myself are one click away. Visit the clubhouse on sportsbusiness.solutions. Sports business solutions. Success in sports starts here. One of the most impressive things that stands out when we talk about Manage Kobo in the workplace is that your people just love you. When you talk about the impact somebody has as a boss, There's the idea that these people run through walls for you, Manny, and it's really special and it's unique. I want to dig into this topic. 
How do you find yourself in this position where you create so much loyalty among your employees? I've never lost perspective of the fact that without my team, I'm no one, right? It's the equivalent of being a captain of a ship without any crew members, like exactly where are you going or what are you doing? And I've always felt that way. You know, some of it, I think, has to do with playing basketball and growing up in that environment and team first. And, you know, as I said, Coach Jackson, he was a Marine. It was all for one mentality. That's what it's always been to me, understanding that the growth and the care of my team is more important than anything else. If I take care of the employee, the person, the business is going to strive. When you dissect an ideal working relationship between a boss and their employer, in your mind, what is the most important factor that you can build on? Trust and loyalty on both sides. I'm transparent. Some folks will say it's our fault, but I'd rather you understand every single thing that we're going through to get to a certain point. That's going to help you strive and succeed towards the goal. I think having that trust and loyalty both ways is the foundation of a good team. How do you actually build trust with your employees? Because it's a tough game, right? If you're too close to a friend to your staff, they look at you too loosely. But if you're too strict, they push back. There's this delicate balance of authority and leadership in being in a vice president title. What's your opinion on how to find a good place of harmony between being the boss, but being their boss? You give respect to get respect. I've never been the type of person that needs to remind anyone that I'm their boss. I don't think that's healthy per se. I am going to act as though I'm not going to be ripping shots with you on a Saturday night and stumbling home together. Like That's how I believe some respect is lost. You're doing that with your colleague. That's how you guys gain respect for each other and camaraderie. If you're doing that with your boss, there's a certain level of respect that you lose. In your path, you leave New York City for the first time really outside of the state of New York in your career, move all the way to the opposite coast to Los Angeles. And now you're a beach guy. What are your first impressions of making the move from New York City, the city that never sleeps to LA? Like, what are the big differences? What are some of the things you really like about the move? The weather. Let's start there. That's a no brainer. It's just beautiful here at all times. The way people interact here is a little bit different than New York, where it's very much direct in your face. Here, it's, it's a little bit more passive. Business obviously still gets done. It's just a kinder way of doing business, if you will. Whereas New York is very much, you got 10 minutes to talk to me and outside of that, get out of my face. That's been a bit of a change. And I guess the biggest change would be having a daughter. That's different. And all the fun things that come with that. I feel like I talk to a lot of people that go back and forth or make the movie their way either to LA or from LA to New York. And they get to one of the places and they go, oh, I'm totally this kind of person. Like, did you get to L.A. and go, oh, shit, I'm a total New Yorker? I'm a New Yorker through and through. I don't think that's ever going to change. It was the same way when I went to Buffalo. That's probably every New Yorker because that's part of the attitude of being a New Yorker. Whereas, you know, L.A., going back to Tupac and Dr. Dre, that California love, that's real out here, man. Like, you guys are just full of love and it's different. I'm more of a New Yorker for sure, but I don't hate it. That's for sure. In this vision of ours for the show, we're trying to paint a picture of what the sports industry is really like for either people growing their careers or growing their careers in non-sports or maybe those who have always wondered what the industry is like. And we wouldn't be doing it justice if we only covered the happy PC stuff. We're going to brace a moderately uncomfortable topic here, but I feel like this is something we need to cover being a minority in sports. Mm -hmm. Are you looked at differently being a half black, half Dominican man working in an industry dominated by white executives? I think it would be naive to think that I'm not from the outside looking in for anyone sitting in my own skin. I can tell it or I can see it. 
it's clearly there, especially the higher I go, the lighter it gets, if you know what I mean. Like that's just always been a thing throughout my career, starting my career. And I think we talked about this before. I was pushed away from revenue when I knew that I wanted to work in revenue so that I can work my way up and someday become president of a team or organization. And typically that's where the money is. I was pushed towards guest services. Maybe you want to do security, so on and so forth. So even at the ground level, you're pushed to different verticals based on what you look like. That said, it's gotten better over the course of my career. However, it's not in a perfect place. That's why we have the movement that's going on now where there's Black Lives Matter and there's a component that it has to do with you know police brutality, but there's also the systemic system of racism touches everything, right? It touches education, it touches the workforce, it touches housing. So yes, it is there in sports. And it's something that, you know, I think we're at a point, we're turning the corner, and we're all fighting to make sure that the higher we go, it is as diverse as kind of our society, if you will. We're really lucky here at Staples Center when you think about it, because one of the things about this movement is it really slapped me in the face and not to make Black Lives Matter about me. But when I looked at Staples Center, we have a female senior vice president of Japanese heritage, Michelle Kajuar, Armin Dembekjian of Armenian heritage is our vice president of event production. And then we have female controls of all of our basketball teams, Danita Johnson for the LA Sparks, mm-hmm. Jeannie Buss of the Lakers, mm-hmm. and then one of my favorite business people on the planet, Gillian Zucker, president of the LA Clippers. To be frank about it, I was probably blinded by the problem Mm -hmm. because it wasn't happening to me. Do you get a sense that the industry as a whole, there is something that we could be doing better to create a more inclusive workplace? I definitely do. And I think it starts with the acknowledgement and condemning the system in itself, right? And that there is an issue. It's one thing to say you want a diverse workforce and a diverse culture. It's another thing being intentional about that, right? So if we're going to say that as an industry, we're intentional about our diversity, then what does our hiring process look like, right? Are we using a HR company like Jopwell, who works with historically black colleges and universities to help place professionals? Speaking of historically black colleges and universities, are we working with them? Are we doing our conferences in their environment to give opportunities? Because one of the big things is, is that there's also a lack of education about the opportunities available within these sports industry, right? So let's get out there and educate folks that, you know, you don't need to just play ball to be able to be part of a basketball organization. I think we have to be intentional with what we're saying we want to do and not just say that we want to do it. The NFL has this process to try and combat it. I'd be lying to you if I said the NFL was perfect with this, but they have Mm -hmm. something called the Rooney Rule, which is a Mm -hmm. rule that says when you hire a head coach for your football team, you have to interview a certain percentage of minority candidates. Mm -hmm. And statistically, that has led to the hiring of more. But when you're going from zero to anything, it's of course, statistically, (laughs) it's going to be something. Manny, I pose this question to you, and I acknowledge that it is not your social obligation to have all the answers, but because Mm -hmm. you're a black American, And because you are a leader, I need to ask you, how do we actually create change? Because there is an overwhelming amount of the population that just doesn't care. There are Mm -hmm. Americans who can watch the videos of Jacob Blake or George Floyd, and it's exciting to them, or it's okay, or they Mm -hmm. can compartmentalize and come up with a reason why it's fine that that happened. And you Mm -hmm. start to feel hopeless. What is really going to change someone like that's mind? Because the whole system is broken from top to bottom. What do we actually do here as a society? I'm not going to have all the answers, right? We have to find them together. I think it all starts with that acknowledgement and condemning, and then a commitment to break the system, then obviously, you know, moving forward to do so. It's hard work. It's not something that we're going to wake up tomorrow 
tomorrow and it's completely gone, right? It starts with this acknowledgement and this movement that's happening right now and being in your face and the protest and, you know, to a certain degree, some of the riots, right? Like some of the riots, riots tend to be the manifestation of the most oppressed. What we're seeing right now is very reminiscent to the civil rights movement. The fact of that when you look at these protests, it's not just black faces out there. It's going to kind of towards the end of the civil rights movement where people started seeing like, this is just wrong for human beings. We need to change this. And that's where we are right now as a society. And your generation is probably the foundation of that. The millennials and Gen Z folks that really do care about the social aspects of a company or an organization, because if you hurt their money, they're going to change, right? And, you know, I think we're there and we're pushing forward. It took hundreds of years to get to this point. It's going to take some time to break this thing down. All eyes are on it. I think that it's going to be slow progress, but it'll be progress. The biggest thing is not taking your foot off the gas. Start planning what that real change looks like as a country, taking steps to do so. Putting aside political, ending racism, ending the systemic system isn't political. It's just what we need to do as a country for human beings, for equality. Your political stance and whatever you believe, let's put that aside. I think we can come to an agreement that people being marginalized, oppressed, and being treated different is wrong. And this is right against wrong, not blue versus red. How this became a political piece, how a black person saying, hey, please treat me equally became political is really disgusting when you think about it. Mm -hmm. I have to be pretty blunt and pessimistic here because humanity has really given me no other reason than to be. I feel hopeless sometimes when we think about this because there's mm -hmm. basic human instinct that seems to be missing of somebody being able to see another human being dying and just not mm -hmm. care. Or they create a reason, maybe it's political, why it's justifiable, maybe their criminal record makes it okay, or some unmerited statistic about how like black struggles a myth and bullshit like that. As if if I look at someone's Twitter fingers on the internet, they get to say, hey Manny, the fucked up parts of your upbringing are okay and should continue to happen and tear down mm -hmm. everything that you're saying. There's no statistic, there's no rebuttal that mm -hmm. makes this shit okay. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel lost. It makes me feel hopeless sometimes with shit like this. I understand, but you can't fall into that because what we're looking for here is the majority for the majority to push change. If we think that we're going to eliminate every single person that has an inkling of racism or refuses to even acknowledge the fact that there's a systemic problem, we're never going to complete the mission, right? You're never going to get to 100% in this situation. If we can get to where we can change policies and change the system in itself, everyone's not going to like it, but it doesn't matter. The system has been changed and we can push forward hold people accountable when it's violated. But we have to be okay with the fact that some people are just not going to accept this, right? And not going to accept us. We ask everybody about their why. What is your central motivation? What is the point where you dig deep that becomes like the ultimate reason why you do what you do? I'm dying to ask you, Manny, what is your why? If you would have asked me before Mila, which is my daughter, and Amanda, I would have said fear. And not fear of failure, more fear of fear of going back to what I was able to get myself out of because it was so hard and so dark in that environment that I never wanted to do that. I committed to always trying to achieve and, and succeed. Where now my why is that little girl and her mom and making sure that they're taken care of and they're okay. And they never have to worry about the things that I went through. They'll know about it because that's important to have a foundation but they're not going to have to worry about it. I think that would be my why. If you're asking less personal and more professionally my why, it would be to pave the way for folks that look like me to be able to have an easier road to my seat. 
All right, Manny, it's been an incredible journey you've had in this sports life, and i really honored that you would come on the show and be vulnerable and dig into some really taboo topics with us here. But what we'd like to do now is we'd like to get into the quick hitters. This is the fun part of the show where we just want to get to know Manny Jacobo a little bit. We're going to ask you some questions about you know your personal life or maybe sports opinions. Just give us your first instinct, authentic answer off the cuff whenever you're ready. Got it. All right, Manny Jacobo, quick hitters. Here we go. Who is your favorite New York Jet of all time? Curtis Martin. Do you have any game day traditions or superstitions? My suits. I always make sure that my tie and my socks match. Manny Jacobo, if there was like a drip meter, I know there is in the NBA, <laughs> but if there was for like sports executives, I think Manny Jacobo takes the cake by a million miles. I appreciate that. I will take that all day. If you could be a guest star on any television show, what would it be? Past the present. Either one. You make up the rules. This is your quick hitters, baby. Past. I would have loved to have been the black friend on Friends. Who is one person, dead or alive, that you would love to sit down and have a coffee or beer with? Tupac. Suggest a guest for the show. Who is somebody that in the sports industry you would like to hear about on Hot Coffee, Cold Beer? Lance Tyson, all day. Who is your favorite female athlete of all time? Layla Ali. If you were on ABC's Shark Tank, which shark would you take a deal with? Oh, Matt Higgins. I have a relationship with him from the Jets. I know how he gets down. What is your least favorite part about the sports industry? The barrier of entry for folks to experience live entertainment. I think we should have, similar to how you have low-income housing in certain areas, there should be a way to make sure that folks that wouldn't normally be able to experience a live event can have access to it. And I don't know if it's dedicating a section or getting a sponsor to underwrite it and then working with school systems to reward kids that are producing and achieving, so on and so forth. But I think that would be the number one thing, how to better serve our communities. If you weren't working in sports, what career do you hope you would have? If I wasn't working in sports, I'd either be a stand-up comedian or I would work on the music side. For the record, you could be a stand-up comedian in sports. Like You could do that right now. I, I know, believe in you. Just, yeah, man. It's getting over the fear of that first set. I had things written out and I was going to do a set in New York and then it didn't pan out. It, it felt like a kind of a hustle and then I, I kind of let that go. But during these COVID times, you pick up some skills. I've been listening to some stand-ups getting inspiration. Maybe. You never know. All right. As somebody who's walked in those shoes before, do you want to know like the bread and butter? Do you want to know how you get this thing going? Of course. The first thing is the first time you go up there, embrace the fact that you will fail like crazy. But everything you thought was super funny won't yeah. be. Every time you're writing a joke, also write it with this 25-75% rule. So you think the joke is really funny, okay? But mm -hmm. take the joke as you anticipate before you go on the stage. Understand that 75% of the laughs you think you're going to get, you won't. Mm -hmm. And if you start with that, you can kind of build it and you can figure it out. But what do I know? I'm just a failed stand-up comedian. Appreciate it. I will take any pointers. There's no right or wrong way to do it, right? There's so many different comedians and everyone has a different sense of humor that once you find your niche, you can find your audience. Give us your Mount Rushmore of favorite stand-up comedians. Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy. You have to put George Carlin up there. You can't deny Kevin Hart. I was about to lose my shit if Kevin Hart wasn't on that list. No, you got to show love to the past folks, but you can't deny Kevin Hart. Listen, Richard Pryor started this whole thing in terms of truth and bringing yourself into your comedy. Eddie Murphy, one could argue, perfected it. George Carlin is just a legend. Your favorite comedian's favorite comedian. You got to show him respect and you can't deny what Kevin's done. The tough one for me is Chris Rock because he does belong there. But who do you take down? 
It's a tough one because Chris Rock is art, right? The way he dissects mm-hmm. it. But a lot of the other guys, like Kevin Hart, that's just who he is. So he's yeah. so authentic. Yeah, it's a tough yeah. one. The only person I would take George Carlin down for would be Dave Chappelle. If we ask someone on your staff to describe you, what do you hope they would say? Honest, respectful, a team guy. And the last one we have for you here, Manny. When your daughter Mila is of age and she listens to this interview, what do you hope she would take out of your story? I hope she takes that no one can derail you except for yourself. So set your goal and always push for it. That's beautiful, man. Manny, thank you so much for coming on and and reliving your hardships with us and really digging through some battle scars that our audience has picked up some pretty incredible perspective from this episode. Respect you a hell of a lot as a vice president, but a lot more as a man. So thanks for coming on the show and for being a leader. Anytime, brother. And I will say you keep doing what you're doing at work as well as with this podcast. I think it's a fantastic thing. I think you're doing a phenomenal job. You might have a career at hosting, but I don't want you to leave, so don't get any ideas. And just as a seller, I think that your potential is unlimited. So just keep crushing it at work and keep doing your thing on on this thing. You have my full support, brother. Appreciate you, man. It's awesome. Today's episode of Hot Coffee, Cold Beers, independently produced by Brock L. Hendricks. The content you heard today does not reflect the opinion or views of AEG, Staples Center, the Los Angeles Lakers, Clippers, Kings, or Sparks, or any of its affiliates, subsidiaries, and partners. 